Way out west, there was this fella. A fella I want to tell you about. A fellow by the name of the Thunderous Lebowski. At least that was the handle his loving parents had given, but he never had much use for it himself. No, Mr. Lebowski called himself the Wizard. Now, the Wizard, that's a name no one would self-apply where I come from, but then there was a lot about the Wizard that didn't make a whole lot of sense, and a lot about where he lived likewise. But then again, maybe that's why I'm just an old cowpoke drinking white Russians on a silly podcast. Pops and box office flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks, and thanks again for joining us for the 71st episode of Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com, the Google Web's number one podcast dedicated to reviewing poorly received and or financially unsuccessful films. Tonight, as part of our 90s flop month, we are talking about a movie that's actually good for once, yet managed not to make enough money to be considered a hit. Tonight, we'll be talking about 1998's The Big Lebowski. Joining us on tonight's pod is a special guest, the IT dude. Welcome to Hops and Box Office Flops. We're always thrilled to have a guest host, and thank you for making the time to hang with us tonight, IT dude. Hey guys, hey guys. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. I thank you all so very much for uh, letting me join you tonight. It's absolutely an honor to join y'all. A dubious honor, certainly, but an honor nonetheless. And we are so thrilled to have you, IT dude. Cheers. The IT dude abides. Mm-hmm. And joining us, as always, are the Thunderous Wizard, just back from his stint as a roadie on Metallica's Speed of Sound tour. Who is this fucking guy? What's he doing here? Well, I'm here to podcast. So I'm very excited about this one. After just weeks of wanting to rip my eyeballs out, this movie is so much fun. I've seen it. We've all seen it probably over a hundred times a piece. Such a great revisit. This is one of the few DVDs that was communally owned in our college house. Like this was just a house DVD that we all watched. And uh, <laughs> taking a break from his leading role in Jackie Treehorn's latest production is Captain Cash. People forget that the biggest podcast zone on the body is the mind. <laughs> Maybe on you, man. Yeah, uh, I I completely share the Thunderous Wizards sentiments. I am thrilled to be talking about a movie that is fun and that I enjoy after what feels like months of movies that were straight up painful looking at you, Postal. And I, if I'm being honest, Warcraft. That's fair. Those were tough to get through. This movie is a joy. There is no issue getting through this movie. It is infinitely watchable. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chumpzilla8 as well as fixing the cable at your stepmom's house. Gentlemen, where can the listener find you on the socials? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WriterTLK. And as always, I am C-A-P-T-C-A-S-H on most of your social media. IT guy, you got a social you want to share? You know, ironically, I generally stay away from the whole social thing, but uh, I actually can be found at uh, the IT dude 75 on Twitter. There we go. All right. Excellent. Give him a follow, all 
How many do we follow? How many followers do we have on Twitter right now? Eighty-five. Eighty-three. All right, eighty-five of you. I mean, at least four of those are us. So there are oh. dozens of them. Literally It'd be forty-six. <laughs> Sorry, <Thanks>. guys. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Hey, and. The Thunderous Wizard, where can the listeners find the pod on the socials? Yes, the pod is available at Hops and B.O. Flops on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, like, share, subscribe to the pod as well, if you would. <laughs> you, please. You got to do it, please. I need some more feeling. Like, or share, subscribe. He sounds like Jeb Bush asking for applause. <laughs> Clap. Clap now. Clap. Clap now. Well, you saw how well that went for Jeb, so I think I'm doing pretty fucking awesome. Thanks, hey, guys. That's, that's Jeb exclamation point. Yeah. Ooh, he's excited. <laughs> All right, let's jump in. It's hard to imagine today that this movie wasn't a huge success upon its release, considering how popular and beloved it is still today, 22 years later. I mean, it was added to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2014 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It helps to remember, though, that this movie was released in the late 90s, and that was before the mid-to-late aughts boom of R-rated comedies that killed it at the box office. The 40-year-old Virgin, Knocked Up, Superbad, and Pineapple Express all made over a hundred... Yeah, Wedding Crashers all made over... I think they only made like $98 million, though. That's why I left it off the list. The movies I did list all made over $100 million at the box office worldwide. Big Lebowski was also the Coen Brothers' follow-up to 1996's universally acclaimed Fargo, which was nominated for Best Picture for Ethan, which it lost to The English Patient, and Best Director for Joel, which lost to the guy who directed The Freaking English Patient. (laughs) Fuck you, Ralph Fiennes, you limey bastard. Anyway, the Big Lebowski... Wait, listen, Ralph Fiennes plays a great Nazi and a great wizard Nazi. Yes, he's really good at both those things. Uh, he's actually really just good at playing like sociopaths because he's even good at Red Dragon as Francis Dollarhide. To be fair, that's a good point. But you know what? That's still that's still the uh, inferior adaptation of uh, Manhunter. Listen, or... give me Brian Cox any day. Yes, Captain Cash loves him some Cox. Fact. Uh, you said it, not me. Hashtag Captain Cash loves Cox. If we can get that trending, honestly. Wow. Sounds like a mouthful. hey <laughs> So, and I think it's also fair to say The Big Lebowski was probably not the film fans of Fargo were expecting as the follow-up. But I will say the films do share some DNA in the form of witty banner and offbeat humor. Um, and oh, I think the it, characters. This is, this is Coen Brothers 101 for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's easier to see the parallels now, but I think at the time they were expecting them to go in a different direction. This is more raising Arizona and less no country for old men. Right. So yeah, I think people were expecting a more serious tone in the fall up to Fargo. And this went kind of the more comedic route. So again, I don't think people knew what to do with it at the time, but it, regardless, I, I think it's fair to say that this movie was ahead of its time and it failed to find an audience like the Coen brothers had with Fargo. So that's kind of why it didn't, hit like they wanted that brings us to beer and for this movie there was really one option to go with and i think it's time that everyone pours themselves a white russian <laughs> uh and my personal recipe for a white guy is to fill a pint glass with ice add about three fingers of vodka 
not quite a shot of Kahlua, and top it off with some half and half, and then shake the shit out of it. And uh, sadly, if I'm going to rate the uh, beverage with movies, I'm going to give a white guy a one movie rating because dairy and heavy drinking just don't mix. You can't do a whole lot of these guys before you get a little bloated and uh, queasy. So Yeah, if I may, if we're doing the, the rating system for drinks, which as a reminder to everyone, how many movie, how many bad movies will you sit through provided you are plied with this form of alcohol? And my rating is a one movie rating with a star, and that star is if it is the Big Lebowski, I will sit and drink White Russians. Otherwise, zero. <laughs> no, that's that's a fair asterisk. That's a fair asterisk. You know, I I actually must admit this is the first White Russian I've ever tried. It's not nearly as nasty as I was expecting it to be. The concept of putting cream in with vodka just it it, it was a, a horrible thought, but it, it doesn't come off too poorly. I'll still take whiskey any day, though. Yeah, it's not bad, but at the same time, you know, it has yeah. its time and place, and that time and place is while watching The Big yeah. Lebowski. Yeah, it's not Touché. particularly refreshing. That's the one thing. It's 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 not like, hmm, I want more of this on a hot day. It's like, ooh, this is going to curdle in my guts. It's the most <laughs> perplexing thing about the character of the dude is that he, like, casually drinks these on, like, a Saturday afternoon. Or at 9 a.m. Yeah. Like, oh, do you happen to, do you happen to have milk and Kahlua Listen, and vodka? A mimosa or a Bloody Mary as a perfectly fine drink to drink before noon. Yes. And a, a drinking milk with alcohol in it, not on that list of acceptable drinks before noon. So I would agree. Yeah. One movie. This movie. As I, yeah. So the consensus then is one movie, this movie. The IT dude, do you have? We never got. How many movies will you sit through for this drink? Ah, uh, shit! I'd probably sit through only one for this drink. There we uh, go. Yeah. I'd move on quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a consensus there, folks. And fun fact: the dude imbibes in nine white Russians during the movie. Nine. A man, a man stronger than me. Yeah. In case you were counting, well, go, the, the movie takes place over several days. So, yeah. To be fair. He has a rough several days, so, I mean, you yeah. can't blame him for boozing. No, no, gutters and strikes, ups and downs. Um, tail of the tape here, guys. The Big Lebowski was released in the U.S. on March 6th, 1998, and went on to a worldwide gross of $46.7 million on a budget of about $15 million. What I find most surprising about its box office numbers is that it only pulled in $18 million in the U.S., after a 5.5 million opening weekend. Now that's especially strange when you compare it to Fargo's 24.6 million US take, following a markedly smaller $730,000 opening weekend. That just seems really weird. Fargo started so slow, yet hit a higher peak, whereas The Big Lebowski opened relatively strong, comparatively, but had no legs. Which is weird, because, I mean, you talk about the late 90s. That that was a time when movies like this could build up ahead of steam, because movies were in the theater for a while, right? And this yes. is a movie that, did, that didn't find its following until it found its way to VHS and DVD. You have, to, you have to remember, Fargo was being nominated, so then you get the awards push. That gets the word of mouth. People then want to see that. So yeah, this fair. wasn't really nominated for anything. And no. As much as you say, like, oh, R-rated comedies start doing really well, 
this is a niche comedy. It's a very smart, well-written movie. Uh, it's not a commercial film, and it's full of character actors all giving the performances of their career. Well, you know, I think the the question is kind of like uh, with everybody loving Fargo so much and with the popularity of the movie, is this a decent follow-up to Fargo? How many people who absolutely died over Fargo came to this and thought, you know, what what the fuck? It's not the same feel to it. Yeah, and I get that it's a different audience than what's gonna what you're gonna attract with Fargo. I mean, there's no denying it. It is not a straightforward comedy. It's not a straightforward, you know, drama suspense movie kind of like Fargo was. Uh, but the thing about this movie is it was so popular on video, as Captain Cash pointed out. What I don't get, and I was going to mention it later, but I'll bring it up now. I don't get why word of mouth wasn't stronger with this movie because people obviously saw it that opening weekend. I would think this kind of movie would garner the following it found on video via word of mouth. So it's not like this movie opened and nobody saw it. I guess is what I'm saying. People saw this movie and yet it didn't get legs until it came out on video. It's just, just it's it's not a mandatory big screen movie. Yeah, no, it's the wrong the wrong it's the an wrong infinitely rewatchable movie that as soon as yeah. you play it for somebody they're like, "Oh shit, why have I not seen this?" And I think yeah. more to you, more to the point, this is a movie that you can watch multiple times and each time you watch it, you start to catch different things. So this is a movie that really does flourish better with, you know, third and fourth and fifth viewings. Yeah, repeated viewings. Huh. Well, is is there a chance, and I haven't actually checked the numbers on this, but it, it seems to me more of the, the Coen Brothers style of movie might be more appealing with multiple watches, you know, where somebody's not going to go to a theater to watch one of their movies two or three times in a row, but... All of the Coen Brothers movies that I've seen have been on video, and I noticed that I have a tendency to like them more after I've seen them a time or two and kind of can sink into it a little bit. Is there a possibility that Coen is maybe better for a cult following as far as as compared to a box office? Well, yeah, I mean, think about the ones that were huge box office hits. You got things like Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men. But then you just beside it, you've got things like True Grit, Raising Arizona, Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing. Where? What else am I missing here? Uh, Lady Killers didn't do that much, but then there was, you know, Hail Caesar. Yeah, I I think what we're really saying here is these are relatively smart movies, regardless of the genre or, you know, their approach. And they do lend themselves to multiple viewings. And, and, uh, yeah, I think you limit your audience when you go with the, the smarter, higher brow angle. It just doesn't appeal. Sadly, it doesn't appeal to the masses the way uh, a Marvel movie might. Like 2019's Caps, a lot of their movies, especially this one, are ones with a more comedic bent. Although Fargo's a really dark comedy, like Fargo's hijinks are cruel and tragic, where these are like, you know, fun for the most part and low stakes. Uh, it's just they, this, this film lends itself to watching it in a room full of people where you can enjoy the jokes together and laugh and you're quoting things. Yeah. If anything, this movie is infinitely quotable. What, what, uh, what the Thunderous Wizard is trying to say is the Big Lebowski is 1998 Cats. That's only, what I'm hearing. Only time will tell. There is some speculation that the dream sequence 
the musical sequence was originally going to go to the the beats of Rum Tum Tugger as a curious cat, but they just couldn't make it work, so scrapped. <clears throat> they had to settle for Kenny Rogers instead. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> So did they end up digitally removing any assholes in this movie? Well, assholes and uh, Jeff Bridges' gigantic penis. And cleft assholes. (laughs) Um, No, no, no. They didn't digitally remove any assholes. David Thewlis is still there. Yeah. So although the contemporary reviews weren't glowing, the movie has transcended the cult hit status uh, and is now considered a bona fide classic. I think that's a fair assessment. People like to call this a cult movie. This is not a cult movie. It's a legit classic. It is a retroactive hit. There's nothing niche about this movie anymore. It's a mainstream yeah. hit movie. It just didn't find an audience in theaters. Um, so I think it's a little disingenuous to call it a cult hit. It's Listen, not. Vincent Van Gogh died poor. What do you want? Yeah. Uh, So, in fact, many reviewers have changed their position on the film over time and have now declared it, if not their favorite, one of their favorite Coen Brothers films. Rotten Tomatoes scores it at 83%, with a user score 10 points higher at 93. And Metacritic gives it a questionable 7.1, with users giving it an 8.7. Yeah, this is a great movie. There's just no denying it. It's funny. It's well written it's I mean, well written that's underselling it's an excellently written movie the script is great the dialogue is hilarious the humor in it there's sight gags there's literal jokes there's subtle humor it's a coen brothers movie it's good stuff folks there's just no getting around it this should have made more money this not saying it should have been a hundred million dollar movie but i mean this probably should have made like you know 70 i think that would have been fair 70 80 and it would have been a huge success should have been a bigger hit than burn after reading which yeah. made like a yeah. hundred million dollars. So what you're it's saying fun, is it's not this. Is if we put Brad Pitt in this, it would have been a hit. Oh, oh I honestly, think if you dude. put any handsome face, yeah. Uh, like whoa, whoa, these Jeff are, Bridges. Come these on, are now. character like Jeff Bridges is a character actor. I guess Brad Pitt kind of is now too. So they say, but well, I think this is probably the tail end of Jeff Bridges leading. He's still a leading man. No, fuck you. He is not a character actor. Jeff Bridges is a, he's a leading man. Well, is he? he's, he's a he's a niche leading man, but he's a leading man. Starman. I know you on. love K-Pax, come on. but come on. <laughs> you know, I, I really think, you know, as great as Jeff Bridges is, come on now. Uh, Brad Pitt really nailed that role in uh, Burn After Reading, though. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, he actually was really funny in the first time Brad Pitt had been really funny. And you kind of looked around and went, wait a minute, this guy can do comedy, too? Wait, yeah. hold on. I'm sorry, did you not watch True Romance? <laughs> anyway, moving on. You can stream The Big Lebowski for free if you have Cinemax Go or but you really should to rent. DVD. Yeah, like I do. I have two copies, actually. And you can uh, rent it for $3.99 on most streaming platforms. So that brings us to the cast. A goddamn murderer's row of character actors from 1998. Jesus, this thing is loaded. That is a fact, folks. We've got... Jeff Ironmonger Bridges as the dude, the other Jeffrey Lebowski. John, the cop from Chud Goodman as a feisty Vietnam vet, Walter Sobchak. They robbed him of the Oscar. He deserved the Oscar for this motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to argue with that. That's that's a valid point. We've got Steve. I'm glad I called that guy Buscemi as shut the fuck up, Donnie. Julianne, I can't believe I got naked for this more as Maude Lebowski. 
Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brant, the Big Lebowski's number two. Rip, buddy. David, I was in Postal Huddleston as Jeffrey, the Big Lebowski. And we've got John Turturro as Jesus Quintana. Sam Thunderbolt Elliott as the Stranger. And we get a cameo from Flea as one of the nihilists, Kiefer. No love for Peter Stormare, also in Fargo. Also uh, a know, character actor. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You, you know, I, I was going to call that out myself when I saw it bound on the list. That, that gentleman, he's fantastic. Not to mention he was also in... Uh, oh, shit. Uh, never he's mind. A, he's I in a lost ton of it. stuff. Yeah. He's a returner to the pod. He was in The Last Stand with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, uh, no shit. And he was doing a southern accent in this movie. So at least... Uh, a little bit better Wait, here that... than he was in that movie. Oh, he was doing a southern accent in The Last Stand. Oh, yeah, not good. Not okay, yeah, because here he does a bad German accent. Yeah, so, it's, fun it's fact, that was, that was born from some stuff they were doing like behind the scenes during the filming of Fargo. He was faking this bad German accent. So the Coen brothers were like, yeah, we like that. We want to use that. So they used it in The Big Lebowski. Give us the funny, Lebowski. Did you know he's actually Swedish? Yes. Yeah. So is the other nihilist. The other nihilist is also sweet. Well, you can so, tell. That. I mean, the other yeah. nihilist is Flea. Uh, well, he's so, one no, of the no, no, the, the other, the other, the other nihilist. nihilist. The, tall, the tall blonde one, yeah. Here's the thing that I can say about this movie's cast. If you go to the Wikipedia page, literally everyone in the cast has their own Wikipedia page. Save the dude's landlord. Literally everybody else ha- is a- yeah. of enough note that they warrant their own Wikipedia page. That's how intense this movie is stacked with actors. But doesn't so, the landlord's f- one-man show have a Wikipedia page? Because that went sure. on to some acclaim in the small theaters of yeah, it was real great. California. I- I'm pretty sure he was one of the mo-capture actors for Cats. Uh, but also the Uli's girlfriend, the blonde, uh, that is none other than award-winning musician Amy Mann. Point of order, I believe that is France's girlfriend who cut off her toe. She no, thought she was getting million dollars. Oh, I thought it was Uli's girlfriend. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe, right. you're, maybe you're right. It is Flea's girlfriend. You lost me at Amy Mann, so. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> well, if you went to Wikipedia, you could see that she has a whole page you could learn all about her. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hey, and IT, dude, I hope your takeaway from this is that John Goodman was in Chud. You know, I completely forgot he was in Chud until I saw that here. It, it, that was one thing. I, well, I guess it's probably been 30 years since I've seen Chud, but I brought I'm this sure up he still a few, remembers. Yeah, I brought this up a few pods ago. Apparently, that's his first film credit, or one of his very first film credits. Really? Yep. A young John Goodman is a cop in Chud. He gets killed. Um, okay. So... Fun fact, again, IMDb does not have its typical one-line description for this movie for some reason. I don't know why. Something's wrong with the entry on the site. The formatting's messed up. There's no one-liner. But, is this one grammatically correct, at least? Or does it start two consecutive sentences with when, like the last one? Well, no, it literally doesn't exist. Um, and that was Street Fighter, but uh, two pods ago. But anyway, what they do have is a plot summary. So I'm going to give that because it's basically a one-line description. Uh, so here's their plot summary. Jeff, the dude Lebowski, mistaken for a millionaire of the same name, seeks restitution for his ruined rug and enlists his bowling buddies to help him get it. 
Mr. Wizard, how would you describe this movie in one sentence? Uh, I said a trio of bowling buddies get embroiled in a half-baked kidnapping scheme cooked up by leather-clad nihilists who are, in fact, cowards. These men are cowards. Say what you will about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. That is a fact. Okay, Captain Cash, give us your one-liner. My one-liner for this is, it's a character piece. The plot doesn't matter. It is endlessly quotable. That's two. Either way. Yeah, I don't know about the first half, but I agree with the second yeah, the, half. The plot is actually very layered and, and structured in this movie. Like This oh, is like such a wonderfully plotted plot. film. Yeah, uh, it's... The, 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 the film, we'll come to that. Yeah, the film is plotted, but the film turns around the I, protagonist who has zero impact on the plot. The plot I, happens I, around him. He's just there to observe it. Yeah, that, okay, I, I agree with that. I don't I don't think I picked that up from your one-liner, but yes, that, that holds up. Okay, IT dude, what you got for us? Uh, well, what I've got is two not-so-conventional guys take a non-existent bad situation and make one hell of a story out of it. Yeah, this is, yep, yep. this is the shaggy dog story. Oh. It's a story like, that straight up, like you're waiting for the, okay, and then what happens? And there was a reason you told me about these two dudes. You talking about it Tim Allen's ends. Shaggy Dog, or okay, I, or is like is this like some furry fanfic? What are we doing here? Yeah, what's going on? Listen, furry fanfic is when we do Robin Hood, the Disney version. Okay, okay, no, okay. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> Listen, it's okay. You're in a safe space. Furries are people too, though they would prefer to be animals. That's fine. That fox had no right being that sexy. That's a fact. And you're on a list somewhere. That's fine. Whole pod's on a list. IT guy, glad you could be here for that. Hey, man, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't check my my search history. <laughs> I gotta go clear my browser history. I'll, I'll be right back, guys. Sexy fox. It's weird. It's just a bunch of pictures of David Duchovny. Whatever. <laughs> Okay, hey, very good, IT dude. I like that. So here is my one-liner. A white Russian swilling, pot-smoking burnout, and his bowling buddies get mixed up with millionaires, pornographers, and nihilists thanks to a case of mistaken identity and a soiled rug. Which really tied the room together. That it did. Who peed on your rug, dude? <sighs> Shut the fuck up, Thunderous Wizard. You're out of your element. Life I am does not uh, start and stop at my convenience. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> you human paraquat. Captain Cash sort of alluded to this earlier. This movie has a lot of plot. Um, and you could technically say most of it is without consequence. But that's not a bug. It's a feature. That's kind mm. of the point of the movie. I'll preface the plot breakdown here with the fact that this is loosely based on the Chandler-esque uh, film noir type novels, like detective novels. It's sort of like a kidnapping case with a lot of parties involved, and it's very much like a detective story. But in this case, the main character is not a capable, apt detective. It's a stoner. She came into my office, a tall drink of water with danger written on it. Except, you know, it's more like, Man, I had a couple white Russians, and this lady didn't seem like she was on the up and up. 
It, anyway. Yes, the detective who can't put together all the clues, even though they're right in front of his face. The anti-Hercule Perot. Homunculus Hercule? Is this, uh, is this uh, Curry from Congo? Space! Hermerker Homolka. Hermerka, Her- Hermerka Homolka, the darkness. Whatever. And with the amount of pot like that, the dude smokes, and deductive reasoning. he would be taking the sesame cake down hardcore. He would eat all the sesame cake. All yeah. the sesame cake. Um, so I typed up an extensive plot for this. So bear with me, folks. We're going to get through this. But I, I, I also have to preface it with I'm given the bare bones here. I'm not going to get into the specifics of every scene because there's so many details. There's so much dialogue and all of it's good and funny and memorable. As it's already been alluded to, this movie is infinitely quotable. There's just no denying it. It's just written fantastically but i'll get us through it for the most part try to cover all the major plot points and honestly i would skip this part of the pod if i was you and just go watch the movie if you haven't seen it or you don't remember it that well or you're like well i've seen it but it wasn't that good no go back and rewatch it because this movie is great there's no denying it anyway okay so hey i'm gonna talk about the opening real quick i didn't type this up but the movie opens fantastically you get that voiceover from sam elliott you get the dude wandering around to Ralph's. Sam um, Elliott is one of like four actors who are the voice. It's him, James Earl Jones, Morgan Freeman, and like David Attenborough. You know, the question I can't seem to stop wondering is if he has to post date the check in the very beginning that he uses to buy his half and half and then spills it as soon as he gets back to his apartment, what is he using to make the White Russians for the entire rest of the film? Listen, you can scoop that right back into the carton. It's going to be fine. He had hardwood floors. That's not going to absorb right away. Half of it went in the toilet. That could have expanded it a little bit. Yeah, to your point there, IT dude, I think he just goes back to Ralph's and backdates another check. So the narration, I think, is useful because it really, it sets it as a period piece. This is intended to be set in the early 90s. Like, When does he write the check for the post-dating? I think it's September. Is it September first, nineteen ninety one? I think it's nine eleven ninety one. Oh, it might be nine eleven. Yeah. Oh wow, that was yeah. Oof. disturbing. But anyway, so that's a thing. But it, like, I, I honestly think that them deliberately saying this isn't meant to be modern times, even when it was made, helps preserve sort of a timeless element to this film. Yeah, and to the IT dude's point. I think we only know the check is being post-dated because of the George H. Bush speech being played in the background. That actually tells us that it's uh, before the date the check's being written for. But you don't get that at the time unless you're a huge uh, history buff, I guess. Or if you read uh, IMDb. (laughs) (laughs) Which, Which we don't. We do our research other ways, probably. Correct. Very correct, sir. Uh, sure. Yeah, I just do mine by like carrier pigeon and microfilm at the library. But wow. anyway, so yeah, and you also get a good character introduction to the dude. It kind of lays some you know framework for what you expect out of that guy. He's the laziest guy in L.A. County, which puts him up high in the rankings of laziest you know worldwide. Um, and so he takes his uh, half and half back to his apartment, and he is um mistaken for the big Lebowski by two thugs that arrive at his schlubby apartment looking for money from the big Lebowski. And the thugs explain that their boss uh, told them that uh, 
Lebowski was good for the money that his wife Bunny owed, and their boss is pornographer Jackie Treehorn. Once the th- uh, one of the thugs pees on the dude's rug, and they leave him once they've decided they have the wrong Jeffrey Lebowski due to the fact that he does not appear to be the millionaire that they're looking for. Again, this scene is very funny. There's a lot of jokes, and uh, you know, I don't have it's, time to get into it. Yeah, watch it's the tough movie. To talk about a comedy because if we recap the jokes, they aren't funny. So, but yep. that's that's what sets the scene. This is what starts the plot in motion. The dude then meets up with his buddies, Walter and Donnie, at the local bowling alley, and he tells them about his recent encounter with the thugs, and most importantly, the fate of his soiled rug, which really tied the room together. A brief aside on Walter Sobchak, he is an aggrieved Vietnam veteran who is a very loosely lidded pot of rage. And yeah. He's played by John Goodman. Yeah, he's got some anger issues. Yeah, and Walter does go on to explain to the dude that he's uh, aware of another Jeffrey Lebowski, uh, you know, the millionaire Lebowski, who he theorizes is who the thugs were actually looking for. The dude makes his way to the big Lebowski's mansion and meets with him in hopes of getting compensation for his soiled rug. The big Lebowski will have none of it and dresses down the disheveled dude for being a bum before dismissing him from his office. The dude bluffs Brant the Big Lebowski's number two on the way out. Played by acting legend Philip Seymour fucking Hoffman. Who is excellent. And yeah, he bluffs him on the way out, saying that the Big Lebowski told him he could take any rug into place uh, to replace a soiled one. While exiting the property, the dude encounters the much younger wife of the Big Lebowski, Bunny, lounging by the pool and painting her toenails. She's clearly a trophy wife, and Tara Reid gives us what is likely the greatest line of her acting career. And I quote, I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. Brant can't watch though, or he has to pay a hundred. Is it weird that she peaked that early in her career? No. Like American Pie was great and everything, and I enjoyed like two of the Sharknados, but none of them tops that. You know, honestly, I'd completely forgotten that she was even in American Pie. My wife had to remind me when we were watching it. That's that's how much I followed her career. <laughs> you clearly forgot about her appearance in the Uwe Boll classic, Alone in the Dark, where she is a, a scientist of some sort who is an idiot. <laughs> oh, that's that's got to be a stretch. Well, that's both a stretch and par for the course. It's about, you know, yeah, that's kind of like right down the middle of what I'd expect. This scene also introduces her nihilist paramour, Uli, who is passed out drunk on a pool floaty. Played by Peter fucking Stormare. Fucking love this actor. Honestly, I'm going to interrupt the pod a lot just to talk about how much I love every actor in this film. It's okay. They're all very good. Uh, We get a scene at the bowling alley as the dude Walter and Donnie are in a league match. This is the famous over-the-line scene where we get some great stuff from Goodman's Walter. And it's likely the best non-dude-centric scene in the film. Absolutely it's, right. Like This, this is memorable. where Goodman won the memorable. Oscar. Yeah, this is a very memorable scene. And, I'll, I mean, there's T-shirts with Goodman's caricature on this pointing the pistol he pulls. Uh, again, the, the signature joke in this scene, um, or, or memorable line, whatever you want to call it, is that, uh, you know, a bowler on the other team commits a line fault. Walter calls him out and they say, Hey guys, it's not that big a deal. His toe slipped over the line. It's smoky. He's this older, frail looking gentleman. Walter's not having it. He pulls out his pistol. 
basically loses his mind and just starts screaming everybody about the rules in Vietnam. And it's, it's memorable. And I mean, that's the meme. Am I the only one who gives a shit about the rules? The rules Am I the only one here that dot, 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 yeah. dot. Plus you yeah. get, this, this is a show dog. It has papers. You can't board it. it lose it. It'll get it's upset. It's hair fall out. Fucking papers. Yeah. 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 And you find out what kind of person Walter is for all his bluster that he's, he's watching the dog, his ex-wife and her husband have while they're out of town. For the record, he wasn't even nominated for best supporting actor. Which is no. bullshit. Yeah, and Julianne Moore is on the record interview saying that she thought Jeff Bridges should have been nominated for best actor. Yeah. No, I mean, I can see so. that too, honestly. Yeah, I, this was this this is an underappreciated movie. It's a it retroactively really loved movie. I yeah. mean, I guarantee you. I mean, you listen to lots of things now, or you read a lot of things. Like nobody thinks The English Patient or Shakespeare in Love were the best movies of the years they won. You know, ten years later, fifteen years Listen, later. Listen, I, I actually so. really like Shakespeare in Love. Just because you're you know, a drama nerd. I, but, but, but yeah, that was a big part of it. But yeah, it's okay no, though. It absolutely did not deserve to win. Yeah. Yeah. And after Walter's tirade, he and the dude leave the bowling alley arguing about how it was inappropriate for him to get that out of line. We get the calmer than you are dude bit. And they're leaving as the cops roll up to the bowling alley to address Walter's uh, incident with the firearm. This is also some subtle social satire as it shows that the cops, the LAPD, have a very slow response time. (laughs) Anyway, again, early 90s. Okay, so uh, the dude returns home after the bowling incident and he gets a call from Brant saying that Mr. Lebowski needs to speak with him. And it's not about the rug that he took. He returns to the mansion for a second meeting with the big Lebowski and the dude learns that bunny has been kidnapped and the kidnappers have left a ransom note demanding a $1 million ransom for her safe return. Brant asked the dude to make the handoff offering $20,000 for his services and suggests that the kidnappers could be the same people that had desecrated his rug and that he is in a unique position to prove or disprove that. Brant gives the dude a beeper and informs him he will be contacted when there is more information to be shared. Back at the bowling alley, the dude informs Walter of his role in the kidnapping plot and suggests that Bunny probably kidnapped herself for the money. This enrages Walter, who seems very offended by the alleged actions of Bunny. We also meet the Jesus for the first time, which is probably the second best not-dude-centric scene in the movie. I'd like to note here... This made the career of John Turturro. Yeah. Everyone knows John Turturro from here. I watched several interviews with Jeff Bridges about this, like some of the 20-year retrospective stuff, some of the during the filming and right after the filming and whatnot, stuff on Conan and all that. And he frequently brings up one of his favorite parts of the movie is when John Turturro licks the bowling ball. <laughs> like, he explicitly mentions, like, I'll watch that movie just to get to the part where John licks the ball. <laughs> I'm like, and apparently the deal is that Turturro's part was not as big as he thought it was going to be. And he was a little upset about that. And the Coen brothers apologized and said, well, here's the deal, John. I'm sorry it's not a bigger role, but we'll let you do whatever you want. So what you see whatever him doing, you want. What, yeah, that's that's completely Turturro's, you know, Listen, deal. The last time we had that, we got Vampire's Kiss, and this is the as much as Vampire's Kiss took it too far in the wrong direction. This movie took it too far in exactly the right direction that everyone remembers 
the Jesus. Yeah, except he's great when he's in the movie for five minutes. Uh, the Jesus roles didn't exactly set the world on fire. Yeah. Nobody wants to see an entire movie about the character who's billed as a creepy bowler who's a pederast. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. No, he's that, the world's most a... likable child in the Western. It, it's a weird niche, but he nails it. You're right. Like I, I, I vaguely recalled that Totoro was involved in some kind of project where the Jesus was going to be the protagonist. I'm like, ah, listen, I, I guess there's probably a way you could make money for that, but uh. yeah. Wait. And the, the little dance he does is apparently inspired by Muhammad Ali. And you do get that great, probably the most memorable visual gag from that, aside from the ball licking, is when he polishes or cleans his bowling ball with the towel between his legs. It's, it's so obscene. It's fantastic. So back at the dude's apartment, he's relaxing on his new rug, listening to an audio recording of a previous bowling match. I guess he's getting some mental reps in ahead of the next league match. Uh, when he's ambushed by Maude Lebowski and two goons, the dude is rendered unconscious, and we get the film's first dream sequence. No, not the big famous one that we all remember. The other one uh, set to Bob Dylan's The Man and Me. Which I think it's worth pausing for a moment and just, you you could appreciate the fuck out of this soundtrack. Like, we take it for granted now that with all the needle drops that happen and shit, but this soundtrack is fucking killer. Yeah, and there's an interesting note to make here, too, about the soundtrack, is this might be the first time you get it, maybe the first or second time you get it. So you hear the Bob Dylan track playing during the dream sequence where he's basically flying after uh, Maud on a flying carpet as he flies over L.A. Um, when he drops, as a, he kind of does a Looney Tunes thing where he sees a bowling ball in his hand and all of a sudden realizes it's heavy and his Superman flight is cut short as he drops towards the earth. Um, you know, he wakes up and when he wakes up, the song continues, but now it's you hear it muffled through his headphones. So now the song is no longer being played as part of the soundtrack. It's actually the music coming from his headphones. And multiple times in the movie, the songs you hear as soundtrack transition into ambient noise in the film it's an interesting dynamic there's a word for it i can't we call remember. that diegetic and non-diegetic yeah that's diegetic that's it or yeah. diagenesis exists within the context of what you're viewing non-diegetic is what is outside of it captain cash gets his check plus for the day wow and no one's half the battle the other half of the battle is lasers uh, to me, to be fair, and and of those lasers, it's like 50-50 red and blue. But either Correct. way. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, yeah, the dude awakes from the dream sequence to the sound of his beeper going off, and he finds that his new rug is now gone. The dude returns to the Lebowski mansion as informed that the exchange is to happen that night. Brant gives the dude a bag phone and a briefcase containing the $1 million ransom with instructions to make the exchange with the kidnappers alone. The dude ignores the instructions and picks up Walter on the way to the drop. Walter reveals his master plan. Give the kidnappers a ringer bag filled with his undies, <laughs> the whites, and capture the, a, a kidnapper and force them to reveal Bunny's location. And then they can keep the money for themselves. Pretty simple plan. We give them a dummy bag, we grab one of them, we beat the tar out of them, we figure out where she's at, we keep the money, we return the girl. Anytime well. your plan is, grab them! You don't yep. actually have a plan. 
It's literally Iggy and Spike's plan. Uh, no, wait. It's that's it's the literally plan to escape. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Successful. That's it, the beauty of the plan, Captain Cash. If you get too complex, then there's too many moving parts, and the plan won't work anymore. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, the hey, beauty listen, of the simplicity. Here. What are you gonna do? Grab him. He brings a burner too. Okay. <laughs> He's not rolling out there naked. It's safe to say Walter's plan does not work. The dude spooks the kidnappers who have bad German accents by letting it slip. He's not alone. This prompts the kidnappers to ask them to make the bag drop from the moving car, thereby ruining Walter's plan of capturing one of the kidnappers. Something about the best laid plans, whatever. Walter outmaneuvers the dude, manages to toss the ringer out of the car window and combat roll out of the car with an Uzi, which goes off when it hits the ground, damaging the dude's car before it crashes into a telephone pole. The dude makes a panic attempt to flag down the kidnappers, but they ride off into the night with the ringer on their motorcycles. Walter dusts himself off and delivers one of the best lines in the movie. Fuck it, dude. Let's go bowling. Back at the bowling alley, the dude seems distant and the bag phone is ringing off the hook, but he's not answering it. Walter remains certain Bunny has kidnapped herself and tries to convince the dude as well. The way Walter sees it, she'll just get bored and eventually come home on her own. We also learn that Walter converted to Judaism for his ex-wife when he becomes upset about one of their league matches being scheduled on a Saturday, the Sabbath, for Shomer Shabbat. When leaving the bowling alley, the dude finds that his car is missing and assumes it has been stolen. Walter does comment. Along with the money. Along with the money. Yeah, along with the briefcase containing the ransom cash. Walter comments, it was parked in a handicapped zone. Perhaps they towed it. I, I should break in here. So the dude only directly references or speaks to Donnie's character about four times in the movie. And you actually get two of them in the exchange as they leave the bowling alley after the dude realizes his car is gone because his bag phone has been like ringing this entire time. So the dude realizes his car is gone. So he just turns to walk away to walk home effectively. And Donnie asks, Hey dude, where are you going home? Donnie, your phone's ringing, dude. Thanks, Donnie. And literally those are two of uh, home Donnie and thanks Donnie are two of the four times the dude directly uh, addresses Donnie in the movie. So there you go. That's that's 50% of uh, Jeff Bridges and Steve Buscemi shared dialogue in the movie. Right there. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, we get a scene of the dude filing a police report on his stolen car while clearly stoned. Papers, um, just papers, uh, you know, my papers, business papers. And the cops ask, well, what do you do, sir? I'm unemployed. My rug uh, was also stolen. Uh, it's, it's great because he's clearly stoned and the one cop is playing with his weed pipe in his ashtray while the other cop is taking notes. Uh, but it's California, so they're kind of like, we don't care. Yeah. Uh, in the background, we get a uh, we hear Maude Lebowski leave a message on the dude's machine and she admits to taking his rug and wants to meet with him. Case closed on the rug. Uh, one of the cops jokes. 
The dude arrives at Maud's loft apartment slash studio to find her naked, swinging from a wire rig and splattering paint on a canvas. We learn that she is the Big Lebowski's daughter, and her artwork is known for being strongly vaginal. She finds that that word makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. Like Georgia O'Keeffe. Whatever, it's fine. Yep. She explains the rug was a gift from her to her late mother and therefore was not her father's to give away. She shows the dude a porno tape starring Bunny and Carl Hungus, whom the dude recognizes as Uli, the nihilist Peter, from the pool. Peter, goddamn Stormare. Love that guy. I'm here to fix Dine and Cobble. You can imagine and, where it goes from here. And he fixes the cable. <laughs> uh, That's yeah. how it always goes when I watch a film, right? Yeah. The guy shows up to fixes the cable. That's what they're there Pizza for. with extra sausage, anyway. Uh, yeah, and at some point we we do get the line. Uh, Listen, Mod, I'm sorry if your stepmother is a nympho, but I uh, I don't see what this has to do with. Uh, do you have any Kahlua? <laughs> <laughs> she speculates the bunny and her father are using the alleged kidnapping to embezzle money from the Little Lebowski Urban Achievers Charity Fund, which her, Maude, and her father are trustees of because she has seen there's been a $1 million withdrawal from the account. She's putting two and two together. She offers the dude a 10% finder's fee if he could return the money, and she also apologizes for the crack on the jaw earlier and gives him the number of a doctor who's a very good man and thorough. He's a very good man. And the dude arrives back at his apartment via Maud's limo, and the driver points out that someone in the VW Beetle is following them. Before the dude can confront the VW driver, he's pushed into another limo containing Brant and the Big Lebowski. The dude is accused of stealing the money, and he defends himself by explaining that the royal we had made the drop and that the kidnappers must be lying. He theorizes that since Bunny owes money all over town, including to known pornographers, which is cool which is cool, that she has kidnapped herself and is probably just holding out for more money. The dude is then presented with an envelope containing a severed toe, a toe with green nail polish on it, the same color which we saw Bunny applying at the pool earlier. The big Lebowski informs the dude the kidnappers will now be dealing with him directly, and by God, sir, I will not abide another toe. You know, I think we really need to give props out to Jeff for not spilling that white Russian, when he gets thrown into the limo with the big Lebowski, that that's just truly impressive. Careful, man. There's a beverage here. Yeah, nice that'll follow come up, up later. That'll come up later. Again, one of the best lines in the movie. That's probably the signature part of that that scene is the you know him being muscled into. Well, and hey, we're skipping over. There's a great little like goofy dialogue bit between him and the driver. Yeah, you know, I got a rash on my ass so bad, but hey, you know me. I can't complain. Hey, man, yeah, I got a rash. <laughs> the whole movie, it's infinitely quotable. It's, uh, it's character actors left and right. There is literally no scene and no amount of dialogue that is not spoken by just kind of a weird offbeat, I did not see that coming character with maybe the exception of the mortuary guy that we haven't even gotten to yet. No, I don't think there's literally, I don't think there's a wasted line in this movie, frankly. But anyway, okay, so the, the dude and Walter meet at a cafe over coffee to discuss the recent events. The dude is quite shaken after seeing the toe, though Walter remains skeptical and doesn't believe it was Bunny's toe. Walter tells the dude, you want a toe? I can get you a toe, believe me. There are ways, dude. 
You don't want to know about it. Believe me. Hell, I can get you towed by three o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. Fucking amateurs. They sent us a tow. We're supposed to shit ourselves with fear. Walter becomes increasingly agitated and starts on a quasi-libertarian rant, prompting the dude to leave Walter to finish his copy alone. Come on, Walter. This is not a First Amendment thing, man. That's a great scene. It's like I posted uh, the YouTube link to my notes. Uh, feel free to put that on the social, uh, Mr. Wizard. Uh, I love that scene. It's great. That's some good stuff between the two best actors in the movie by far. Uh, Again, Goodman John Goodman and... relentlessly kills almost every scene he is in. Yeah. This is one of the better ones where he just it's out there and it's insane. But he's he you you really believe he believes what he's saying. Well, you know, John Goodman actually claims this to be one of his favorite roles that he ever acted in. He should. He's fucking great at it. Yeah. Fantastic. Sully from Monsters, yeah. Inc. Jeff Bridges says the same thing. And this is probably one of the better scenes for the two of them because it's pretty much just the two of them back and forth. No offense to Steve Buscemi. And it's great, too, because they get the interaction with uh, uh, the waitress at the, at the cafe as well. But anyway, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, they truly wasted Steve Buscemi in this movie. He oh, I could've... know. But I feel like that was deliberate. It was, I'm yeah. sure it was. It was an fucking kill it, and we're going to give him six lines. That's it. It was, it was an in-joke because he, had, he was a motor mouth in Fargo, so they gave him a role with like no dialogue in this movie. It's literally just the Coen brothers being funny. It's, that was the thing. Uh, it's, it's weird. Um the dude returns home to relax in the tub with a joint while listening to a tape of the songs of the whale. He hears the LAPD leave a message on his machine, informing him that they have found his stolen car far out, man, far fucking out. The dude is ecstatic, but his happiness is short lived as Uli and two accomplices burst into his apartment, demanding to know where the money is. They drop a ferret in the tub to intimidate the dude and threaten to cut off his Johnson. The next morning, he heads to the impound lot to retrieve his car. It's been wrecked, even more, and it's been possibly used as a toilet. And, of course, there is no briefcase in the trunk. He does ask the cop if they've got any leads. He's like, leads? Yeah, they just added four more detectives to the case. <laughs> they got the boys down at the crime lab uh, working in shifts. <laughs> Again, a statement on how ineffective the LAPD are. Uh, the irony is, is even though he told the police officers when he was filing the report that uh, the briefcase was in the trunk, he never actually looks in the trunk when he's at the impound yard. Uh, but he does ask about it, I think. And they do they do comment that the does or excuse me, they do comment that the thieves did not take the tape deck or the credence. So I, I believe it's verbally referred to. I could be wrong, though. I will say this later in the movie. Walter definitely does check the trunk when he gets the crowbar out. So fun fact, the dude has a crowbar in his trunk. Back at the bowling alley, the dude is pretty bummed out. Walter and Donnie are unable to cheer him up. The dude plops down at the bar and is joined by the stranger. They exchange pleasantries before the dude receives a call at the bar from Maude. Maude is upset he hasn't gone to the doctor yet and asks him to meet her at her apartment. The dude informs Maude he now believes Bunny has really been kidnapped, possibly by Uli. And the dude finally goes to the doctor who asks him to drop his shorts even though he was hit on the jaw. 
We jumped to the dude jamming out to Credence in his car, specifically to looking out my back door, when he notices the VW Beetle has returned. He panics and drops his joint in his lap before crashing into a dumpster while trying to put out the joint with his beer. The VW is gone, but he finds a piece of paper stuffed between his seat cushions. It's a kid's homework paper, specifically Larry Sellers. They arrive at Larry's house, and they spot a brand-new Corvette parked in front, and that leads the dude to fear the money has already been spent. They find Larry's father in an iron lung and attempt to interrogate Larry, who remains expressionless and silent throughout the ordeal. Walter resorts to plan B. He heads outside and begins to smash the Corvette with a crowbar from the dude's trunk. The Corvette's real owner comes running from across the street to stop Walter and smashes the windows out of the dude's car in retaliation. This is where we get the famous line. This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. And that's the line from the TV edit. It's this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. But it's more fun to say stranger in the Alps. But anyway. You know, I, I really love how they jumped directly from the doctor telling him to pull his shorts down to him being in an absolutely fantastic mood in singing in his car. So it goes right from drop your shorts to him being absolutely great. Kind of yep. makes you wonder what happens in the uh, in the in between. I just assumed it was a prostate exam, but that's just me looking Happy out my thoughts. back door. I'm just saying. <laughs> do do do! It's a good ass song. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, back at the dude's apartment, he is nailing two by fours to his floor to block his door while talking with Walter on the phone. Asking him to leave him alone, but not before agreeing to attend their next bowling practice. Just as he places his chair against his door and the two-by-four nailed to the floor, the door opens to the outside. This is probably one of the best moments of pure and conventional comedy in the movie. I can't emphasize enough how funny this sight gag is. The dude painstakingly, yet sloppily, nailing this block to the floor to support the chair, to block the door not realizing this door opens to the outside. It's pretty fucking funny, and it'll come up again later. Anyway, so in his doorway is Jackie Treehorn's thugs again, and they inform the dude that Jackie wants to meet with him. The dude arrives at Treehorn's mansion in the middle of a bitchin' garden party. Treehorn mixes the dude a white Russian and asks him where Bunny is. The dude says, I thought you'd know where she was. Treehorn denies any involvement, uh, in the kidnapping and excuses himself to take a phone call after making a note on a pad of paper. The dude rushes over to make a rubbing on the pad to reveal the image or the note left behind. And it was just a crude drawing of a man with a massive erection. Which probably for, for is reasons. one of the first indications that the plot is turning around the protagonist. Like there are all these disparate elements who want stuff to happen. None of which has anything to do with the protagonist. And at this point, literally, there's like no evidence he's gathered other than speculation. Like every every piece of hard evidence he's reached for has been a dead end. Uh, it's just, you know, a drawing of a dick. Um, it, might, it might as well just been dick butt. That might be the original dick butt because Ooh, the dude does have a butt. You know what? I Listen, there's got to be a gif out there where Jackie Treehorn, you get the rubbing and it's dick butt. I'm, yeah. I'm looking for it. You no. guys should both be ashamed of yourselves that we're this deep into this. No, neither of you have mentioned that Jackie Treehorn is the great Ben Gazzara, who is also Brad Wesley from Roadhouse. So he's double fucking badass in two oh, of the fuck. great movies of all time. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I did know that, but I, I had totally forgotten that and did not include it in my notes. So shame on me. I, I will take the check minus for the day. Fucking Roadhouse. So that's two Roadhouse veterans in this movie because we've got Sam Elliott too. Yes. Uh, could oh, be the same guy. Fun, Maybe he came back from the dead and he's just an angel in this movie. Yeah, I think well, it's fun fact logical. about Sam Elliott was basically like, what the fuck am I doing here? And the Coen brothers were like, don't worry, it's fine. He's like, no, seriously, what, what is this movie about? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it, it's fine. He's the narrator. <laughs> like, the, he's, the, yeah. he's the reliable narrator because the dude couldn't serve as the narrator even though he is the protagonist of this noir movie. I have a theory on why that is. I'll get to it at the end. Yeah, and Drac- Jackie Treehorn is an excellent. What's that guy's name again? Ben Garza? Ben Gazzara. Ben Gazzara. He's, he's great. He, he plays that role very well. Uh, it's a little over the top and a little cheesy, but it's perfect. It's exactly what you expect out of a pornographer. Um, Log jamming. Log jamming. Yeah. Getting way off track here. So, uh, yeah, so, so he gets the dick pic. Jackie Treehorn returns and offers the dude, again, a 10% finder's fee if he could deliver the money. The dude says, hey, no problem, I, I got you. Uh, a kid named Larry Sellers has the money, uh, but Treehorn does not seem convinced. The dude insists that Larry has the money. As he starts to black out, all the dude ever wanted was his rug back. It really tied the room together. And darkness washes over the dude. Here we get the second dream sequence, and this is the one set to Kenny Rogers uh, just dropped in. It's great. The dude dreams he's appearing in a Jackie Treehorn production, Gutterballs, with Maud and a cameo from a guy playing Saddam Hussein. The trip turns bad when the three nihilists begin chasing after him with a comically large pair of scissors. I like to point out you see a painting with a red background and a large pair of scissors in Maud's apartment. That is the start. That's not a start. That is another element and a motif of the dude repeating things he sees in the movie. More on that later. Or yeah, sees or to hears. Cut off his Johnson. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So yeah, the the, the nihilist and red unitards chase after him with giant Looney Tunes sized pairs of scissors. Uh, the dude comes back into consciousness as he's running down the middle of the street in a panic uh, with a cop car right behind him. Uh, yeah. So he is hauled into the uh, police station in Malibu, where he's confronted by the chief of police. Stay out of Malibu, Lebowski. Stay out mm-hmm. of Malibu. Deadbeat. The chief of the Malibu Police Department informs the dude he was ejected from Treehorn's party for being drunk and abusive and accosts him for being a deadbeat and a stain on his peaceful beach community. The dude seems uninterested, and the chief beans him in the head with his coffee mug. The dude catches a cab ride home, and he asks the driver to change the radio station because he's had a rough day, and he fucking hates the Eagles, man. Don't we all? Fuck the Eagles. I don't blame him. I'm taking that stand if the fucking guy's going to insist on making me listen to Hotel California after I've been drugged at a pornographer's mansion and assaulted by the chief of police. Not having it. No thanks. No way. No how. Fuck the Eagles. And it's not even Hotel California. It's just some other Eagles song. It's fucked on Henley. But anyway, the cab driver wasn't having it, and he tosses the dude from his cab. In the background, we see Bunny drive by in a convertible Jag with all ten toes intact. Ten toes intact, say it five times. Ten toes intact, ten toes intact, ten toes intact, ten toes intact. You said it yourself, dude. You kidnapped yourself. It's an open and shut case. I- I'm quitting Tarantino, so I'm all about those ten toes. 
Speaking of directors who have made that, who would have made that screen, if would have made that scene infinitely more creepy. Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> long Quentin pause, Tarantino, everybody. <laughs> extended framing. Yeah, he, he's his name's going to come up later. Wait for it, folks. The dude returns home to find his apartment has been tossed, just like Captain Cash's salad. He trips over the two by four he had nailed to the floor. He looks up to see Maud standing above him wearing nothing but his bathrobe. Post-coitus, the dude and Maude engage in pillow talk. The dude reveals he spent time as a roadie for Metallica, and Maude explains that her father has no money of his own. The wealth belonged to her mother, and he merely lives on a generous allowance. The dude mixes himself a white Russian while Maude performs some yoga that increases the chances of conception, which causes the dude to do a spit take, but she assures him that she has no intent of, you know, expecting him to be involved in the child's life or really want to be involved with him socially at all it's a real it's david a crosby scenario when melissa etheridge was like you know if i was going to choose someone to be the father of my child it'd be you david crosby with your wonderful mustache and history of abusive hallucinogens love me yeah and uh, the cohen brothers are on the record saying that they had not really examined the implications of Maud wanting to father a child with someone who has the same name as her father so that, that wasn't part of the deal. They're like, oh, yeah, that is kind of weird. Huh. Anyway, the dude phones Walter and asks him for a ride to the Lebowski's mansion right away. Walter protests because he doesn't want to drive on Shabbos unless it's an emergency. And the dude assures him this is an emergency. While waiting for Walter outside, the dude spots the VW Beetle again and confronts the driver. It turns out it's a PI looking for Fon Knudsen, a.k.a. Bunny, on behalf of her parents back home in Minnesota. The PI mistakes the dude for a fellow PI and commends him on his work thus far, you know, working both sides of the kidnapping against each other. The dude is visibly confused and asks the PI to leave him and his special lady friend alone before leaving with Walter. Next, we get a scene with the nihilist and a blonde woman at a diner having pancakes. We get a shot of the woman's foot and the toe area of her cowboy boot is cut off, exposing her toes. And there's a large bandage wrapped around where her pinky toe should be. And I'd like to point out, this is the first scene in the movie that does not have a direct shot of the dude. But, fun fact, folks, in the background of that shot, through the window of the diner, you see the van with Walter and the dude drive by. So, yes... The dude, not the big Lebowski. The other Jeffrey Lebowski is, in fact, in every shot of the movie. Or scene. Every scene. Huh. So, so there you go. On the drive to the Lebowski's mansion, the dude explains his epiphany to Walter. The big Lebowski wasn't concerned that the drop hadn't happened. And he didn't immediately ask for the money back because he hadn't given him the money in the first place. He declares to Walter, you threw a ringer out for a ringer. He deducts that the big Lebowski didn't want his wife back and had hoped she'd be killed while he was able to keep the ransom money for himself while pinning the theft of the money on the dude. The dude and Walter pull up to the Lebowski mansion and see Bunny's Jag crashed into a large fountain out front. Brant informs the dude and Walter that Bunny had been visiting friends in Palm Springs without telling anyone. Walter and the dude confront the big Lebowski in his study with their theory, and Walter accuses the wheelchair-bound Lebowski of being a baker. Walter removes Lebowski from his wheelchair via bear hug and drops him on the floor. The big Lebowski is reduced to tears, and the dude insists that Walter help him get back in the chair. 
We return to the bowling alley, and spoiler, we see Donnie not bowl a strike for the first time in the film. We get another great scene with John Turturro's Jesus. When the dude, Walter, and Donnie exit the bowling alley, they find the nihilist standing in front of the dude's burning car. The nihilists demand the ransom money from Lebowski, or they will kill Bunny. The dude then tells him he knows that they don't have the girl, and that the big Lebowski still has the money. Uli complains, or Franz, whatever, flees. Somebody complains that their girlfriend had cut their toe off for all this, and states, Uli states, we'll settle for whatever money you have on you and call it even. The dude and Donnie go for their wallets while Walter has other plans. Walter gets agitated and demands his undies back before telling the nihilist to come and get it, calling Uli a dipshit with a nine-toe woman. I guess maybe that was Flea, I don't know. And then drilling Flea in the gut with his bowling ball. Oh yeah, and Walter also bites off Uli's ear before calling him an anti-Semite and punching him in the face. We see Donnie in the background clutching his left arm and appearing to suffer a heart attack. We cut to a funeral home. Which is weird because we've just described the climax of the film where the dude Lebowski confronts the big Lebowski about how he set him up and everything is resolved. And so the big Lebowski is out of the picture. The dude can continue being the dude. But now we're spending an extended period of time in which Donnie dies for the purpose of, I don't know that it's catharsis. I, I got, because someone needed to die that we cared about? I don't know. Well, did we actually care about him? I mean, he didn't have enough lines for us to really have any attachment to him. I mean, but he wasn't a dick like Walter was. So, like, and generally everybody shat on him. So you were like, oh, well, you feel kind of bad for the dude. It just furthers the no, point not, not that the, dude. the kind dude's... Of bad Donnie, for clarity's sake. The dude's entire existence is based around this bowling league. He does not care about any of this other stuff that's going on. He's just dragged into it, and he's bumbling from one plot point to the next. But he is our central character. But really, his life is the bowling. Well, I mean, despite the fact that his life is actually the bowling, did you realize, though, that we never actually saw him do any bowling throughout the entire movie? Uh, You do once. Only in a dream sequence when he's working with Maude. Correct. But throughout the rest of it, he's the only character that we never actually see roll a ball. And you only see Walter do it once. I Listen, I'll accept that because that tracks with the dude being lazy, so that's fine. No, I think I think it's, again, that's just an in-joke with the uh, Coen brothers. They made a movie that's so central to bowling, yet the central characters who are bowlers, and that is central to their characters— you only see Donnie really bowl. Which is why it's the second best bowling movie of all time behind Kingpin. Yeah, Fair. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there again, a Coen's Brothers movie is is truly about dialogue more than it is about anything right. else. I think it's I think it's just another in joke, you know, for them. Hey, we made this movie because we all think you see this movie and you assume that you've seen these guys bowling. But you haven't. They've been in bowling alleys. You've seen other people bowling. There's a lot of bowling shots in the movie. But it's not the characters. Like to just your point, them. to your point, it dude. It's just the dialogue. The, the characters entire do. credits is a bowling montage, a stylized right. bowling montage. That's not the lead characters. Yeah. Um, moving on, and I apologize. I've learned one thing, and maybe if I do learn one thing from this pod, it's that uh, white Russians are not uh, a good pod uh, beverage. They are loud and noisy. That's fair. And so... after the first one, they taste like shit. So. Yeah, I'm on my third now, and I'm not regretting anything at this point. We cut to a funeral home, 
and the dude and Walter are negotiating how to handle Donnie's cremated remains. They are shocked at the price of the home's most modestly priced receptacle. When informed they must have a container of some sort to transport the ashes, they ask if there's a Ralph's nearby. <laughs> we cut to a seaside cliff with Donnie's ashes apparently in a Folgers coffee can. Oh, well, I just wanted to bring up the fact, I don't know, have have any of y'all seen um, that uh, Zach uh, Galif and whatever the fuck his name is uh, movie uh, Due Date? Because in that movie, he carries his father in an ash form through the entire movie to the Grand Canyon in a Folgers can. And I was just kind of wondering if anybody thinks that this might be kind of an homage moment for this whole movie. I hard agree, yes. No, I haven't seen the movie. Just based on what you've described, there's no way you do ashes in a specifically a Folgers can and yeah, do that, not reference this film. That's the RDJ movie, right? Yeah. It's it's Galfinakis and RGA. R- or, RDJ. Is that Robert yeah. Downey, RDJ. Yes. Yes, that's yeah. it. And it's absolutely fantastic. It has to be an homage to this. Um, yeah. I would think so. You know, I didn't picture it at all, but my wife actually brought it up when we were driving around today talking about it. And uh, yeah, through the whole movie, he's actually carrying his father in a Folgers can. And it just kind of seemed to fit. Also, uh, unrealistic aspect of this movie, we'll get to it here, because after Walter delivers a mostly moving eulogy for Donnie uh, before attempting to dump his ashes off the cliff only for the wind to catch the ashes and blow them back into the face of the dude. Uh, fun fact, human remains and even your pets when they're cremated, it's not like a fine powder. There's like chunks and stuff. And it doesn't, it, that would have been real bad. Like, you know, I'm, I'm glad like that's a you know movie thing. You would not want to see real ashes dumped out. It's not like fine powder and all that's that. That's like the least fun fact. I've yeah, ever it's heard. gross. It's weird. Yeah. It's, now, it well, all I think about I mean, is it, my poor dead dog in the garage and how many chunks of him are sitting in that don't, box. Don't. Yeah. Don't. Don't. Don't sift that. Don't run well, that through a screen. Just. I mean, call the it thing good. about it is, if if you think about it, it's only the ashes that are going to truly blow. The chunks are going to fall straight down. So oh, that's a good point. You good know, point. As he's dying it out. He's right. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. physics. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, so the dude scolds Walter for bringing up Vietnam again, and Walter tries to brush Donnie's ashes off the dude, kind of in a loving fashion, and he gives him a hug, and they both kind of uh, uh, embrace before Walter declares, fuck it, man, let's go bowling. Cut to the dude and the stranger at the bowling alley bar. The stranger asks the dude how he's doing. The dude responds with, Strikes and gutters, ups and downs. This echoes the sometimes the bar eats you comments from the last time they met. Before grabbing his beers and turning away from the bar, the stranger tells him to take it easy. And now we get the famous line from the dude. Yeah, well, the dude abides. The movie ends with a monologue from the stranger. He laments the loss of Donnie, lets us know that Maude is pregnant, and states that we should take comfort in the fact that the dude is out there taking it easy for all of us sinners. Everything that happens happens independent of the protagonist. No, he's in. He's directly involved in everything. He's but, in every scene of the movie. No, he he is. Yeah. He is. But he can literally do nothing, and the movie proceeds as normal. Uh, basically, again, that is not a bug. That is a feature. That's he the whole literally point. The does kidnapping never nothing. happened. Yeah, and that's because the kidnapping never happened. Yeah. He does figure out that the kidnapping never happened. That's the only thing to happen in the movie because the thing we think happened didn't happen. Fair. 
Okay. So uh, that brings us to beer. <laughs> hey, careful, man. There's a beverage here. Um, I give this movie two white Russians. Uh, you definitely don't need a buzz to enjoy this movie, but a couple of cocktails will certainly help you achieve a dude-like state while taking it in. So this is a good movie. You don't have to get too buzzed to have fun with it. So out of a one to six, I give it a two. Yeah, Especially listen. if it's a white Russian. Two will do the trick. There's a reason comedy clubs have a two-drink minimum. You want to loosen up and have a good time. This is absolutely two drinks. You're good. It's not too heavy. It's a fun time. You're going to remember stuff. A lot of stuff you're going to go, what the fuck is going on? But it's going to stick with you. So I'm, I am in complete agreement. Two beer movie. Doesn't even have to be strong beers, but ideally two white Russians. Yeah. Gentlemen, other than Captain Cash, what are your rankings? <laughs> Listen, you don't have to give me. A, I realize I'm not a gentleman. It's fine. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would actually say three. Just for the fact that uh, if you have that third one, it'll kind of tip you over the edge just a little bit and put you more in a dude-like state of mind so that as you enjoy the movie, you can kind of groove with the whole feel and the flow of the situations that you're watching. So that'd be three beers or, you know, I guess three white Russians for me. There you go. Uh, yeah, I don't think you need any because I think this movie is so uh, funny, it's punchy, it's incredibly well written, all the characters are great, they're all relatable in their own way. But, you know, if you want to channel the dude, I would have two. You don't need any more than that. This is this is a fantastic movie. No, that's fair. I think this is legit two to three beverages. I think that's a good range for this movie. It's good, and I think, you know what, uh, watch it a couple of times, you can add another drink or two to your account. You know, because you can have more fun with it once you've seen it enough times. You start to pick up on some of the nuance and whatnot. But, uh, yeah. Well, it's time for the old Dudorito to freshen up his drink. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side for some general impressions. Eight-year-olds, dude. Eight-year-olds. Welcome back, folks, to our 71st episode of Hops and Box Office Flops. This is your host, Chumpzilla, and I'm joined by the Thunderous Wizard, Captain Cash, and our special guest, the IT Dude. We've covered the plot of The Big Lebowski, and now it's time to discuss our general impressions. I actually, I think we can keep this pretty short, because we've kind of hit it up during the extensive plot review we just did, and plus, partner with the fact that this is just a generally good movie. We all enjoyed it. It's great. Go watch it. Don't take our word for it, folks. Go see it. I'd just like to start off with this question quickly. Would you recommend seeing this movie? I say yes. Yes. Yeah, I feel like around the board. Yep. Yeah. Definitely yes. Uh, I'd like to think there's no reasonable human being, at least in the continental U.S., that hasn't seen this movie yet. Um, if you haven't, please do. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I'll hearken back to my earlier comment. I don't think you could even call this movie a cult hit anymore. It's just a legit hit. This movie is a classic it is not a niche film at all. It's just found an audience after its release. Um, I agree, but I mean, I, I feel like IT dude, you had I I thought a good insight to it. In general, Conan Brothers movie. What are you there for? 
Well, you're there for the conversation. You're there for the interaction from character to character rather than the moments of action or chaos on the films. I, I believe it's all about the the personal conversations. I, I'm inclined to agree. And I would add to that, you're there for the weird out there characters. And there's, there's yes. literally no one in this movie that isn't a weird out there character other than maybe the mortuary guy who is just the mortuary guy. Everybody else, there's something funky or strange about them that you're like, what is going on? Jackie Treehorn's pretty much just a pornographer. That's exactly what I would expect if I went to some sleazebags mansion in Malibu. (laughs) But he does it in a very slick, used car salesman fashion, which is perfect. That's his thing. And I think you're wrong. Uh, I wouldn't call out the uh, guy at the funeral home like it's that's par for the course like I, I i don't see any issue with that at all um to your point though it dude and captain cash you seconding it it is about the dialogue it is about the back and forth between the characters that's what this movie really thrives on because it's basically just conversations taking place in different locations from scene to scene the best way I can describe this kind of Coen Brothers movie, it's basically like a Kevin Smith movie that went to college. Absolutely. Completely. Yeah, I can see that. Um, quickly, let's do a, a little roundtable here. Uh, favorite scene and or line in the movie. Again, this movie's infinitely quotable, but guys, is there anything that really sticks out to you that you just find yourself repeating like on a daily basis? Because I know there's stuff from this movie that pops for me all the time. You know, I'd have to say, hands down, gutter balls. The gutter balls dream sequence when he's knocked unconscious by the whatever he was dosed with is is probably the most memorable scene for me. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And fun fact, I believe the thunderous wizard and Captain Cash can back me up here. There was, in fact, a house in lovely Oxford, Ohio, our old college town named gutter balls yeah and the wrestlers lived there um i knew the guys and more importantly in that house above the entertainment stand they had like a built-in shelf they had an entire castle grayskull playset with <laughs> multiple he-man figures and it wasn't theirs it just came with the house the house came with a castle Grayskull and oh, several masters awesome. of the masters of the universe figures. And it was like, you didn't touch it. It was like covered in dust. It was just up there. That was just part of the house. Mine is pretty definitive. I love almost every scene in this movie, but my favorite scene is the handoff scene where he picks up Walter. He brings his dirty undies, basically says like, it's simple. I'm going to grab one of them, beat it out of them. And then all the shit hits the fan. I think it has the best, needle drop of the movie i don't think it's necessarily my favorite song of the movie but when they play run through the jungle and walter's doing his best thing and dude's looking very exasperated because he's gonna fuck everything up and then he does fuck everything up um it's just so great because you kind of realize walter is certainly has anger problems but he's also mostly full of shit and he massively screws up this entire enterprise but it is so well done uh, him rolling across the ground as the gun is spurting bullets, shoots the dude's car, he hits the telephone pole. It's phenomenal. And then, of course, Walter doesn't give a shit at all that he's just destroyed this entire plan. He just wants to go bowling. 
I really, I can't choose a single scene where I'm like, this, this is the scene that is my favorite because they're all so incredibly good. Like, I just, I, I for me, I, I feel like it's probably the initial bowling scene with Smokey and the introduction of, of Jesus. But, but even then, Absolutely everything is neck and neck. This movie is so dense and ridiculous the entire time. And no, I that's, love it. that's a very strong scene, though, because you get both Walter and Smokey and the Jesus. Exactly. You, you do get a lot in that scene. But that's I mean, but even still, that's not like to what everyone else has said. That There's the gutter ball scene. There's the rollout scene. All of that is so incredibly good that... Even if that might be, even if I pick that as the best, those are like my numbers two, like you know, best minus barely yeah. a percentage. No, this whole movie is infinitely quotable. It's, and like I said, there's not a wasted line in it. Uh, for me, probably my favorite scene is the visit with Jackie Treehorn because it it's is the a lot of fun. That, that was that might have been my backup. Yeah, because it's so surreal and it's weird. And it's the one scene where the dude thinks he's got it figured out, you know, or, or acts like he's got it figured out and tries to leverage his knowledge against another character. And it backfires spectacularly. And in the dialogue in that scene is great. And the actor's great. I'm sorry I didn't realize he was the bad guy in Roadhouse. I, I feel ashamed now. Um, but yeah, and just, and just the dick butt joke. It's just like, Oh, he's going to get a clue. Like, cause you almost feel like that's going to be something. And it's just like a dick. And you're like, okay, no, that's the movie I'm in. It's a dick that it's checks dick. out. That actually makes sense. But as far as the quotes go, I, I think aside from he fixes the cable, <laughs> I think my favorite line, at least from Walter is this one. Nihilus. Fuck me. I mean, say what you will with the tenets of national socialism, dude, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> I don't know why that that's burnt into my brain. Anyway, uh, my my line from this film for me is still the ups and downs, gutters and strikes. That that's something I I carry with yeah. me. Like, how's your day going? Oh, you know, ups and downs, gutters and strikes. I, I think the number two to that is well, that's like just your opinion, man. You know, ironically, uh, my favorite line, and it struck me as soon as I heard it the first time I went back through this movie, was the whole toe thing. You know, you want a toe? I can get you a toe. Believe me, there are ways, and uh, you don't want to know. Believe me. Uh, it, it was just so striking, just the way he delivered that line to me. It, it was fantastic. So yeah. earnest, yet so full of shit. <laughs> and even, before yeah. that, even before that, he's like, I get a toe, you apply some nail polish, get some shears, and... I love the little the little dip thong, little tongue, whatever the tongue knock, the, <laughs> you know, with the shears. It's like it's peak John Goodman, the, Mr. Wizard. The entire movie boils down to the, to the quote that is my favorite when he says, "This is kind of, this is a very complicated case, Maud. You know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous," because he at no point in time knows what the fuck is going on, which is shown by the scene you mentioned where he etches the thing and it's a dick. And he's like, oh, maybe he's going to get one step ahead. Like, he's so far removed from the thread, it's not even funny. Well, but but the, the whole joke, though, is that there is nothing. Yeah. 
but like, he's chasing literally nothing because nothing has happened. The whole thing they have to come to him because he's mm-hmm. bumbled the whole thing so badly that it ends with them like, "Hey, give yeah. us the money. Where is it? You were supposed to give it to us." And he's like, "Oh well, <laughs> let's have no, this fight in a bowling alley parking lot." Yeah, I, I just I just can't emphasize enough how bungled the reception of this movie was because it's brilliant but i just think people didn't know what to do i think literally the problem with this movie is you have to watch it three or four times and you're like ah yes <laughs> it's uh it's just not a movie theater movie yeah that's fair because it, because when you leave a movie theater right like they have a cinema score and they say oh what'd you think you have to do it right away you have to yep. think about this movie you got to relive the lines you have to go through the moments because it is. It's rewatchable. It's meant for physical media. It's meant to, like, I'll just play it right back. Let's do it again. Yeah. So that leads me to my open-ended questions here, guys. Because did this movie deserve to flop? Absolutely I think, not. Yeah. No, right? Consensus? It, not at all. I realize it's probably not a $150 million movie, but it should have made, like, $70, $80 million, I think. Well, it, it made enough to break even. But I think it's cult following, you know, like the whole notion of, of a flop is, is gone now because, you know, there's a festival every year. Uh, people talk about this movie all the time. Every kid who enters college for the next 50 years is going to wind up watching this movie with their friends and this love is it. This Animal House. This movie's going to live yeah. forever. And there's, you know, Animal House. I love Animal House, but like there's elements of that movie that are super problematic this that movie, uh, much less so. Yeah, th- this movie is much more uh, contemporary, I think, in ways that you can't get from a movie like Animal House. Yeah. There's some concepts in Animal House that are timeless about the college hedonism and whatnot. But this movie is yeah, markedly smarter and translates well even today, 20 years later. And, and um, these guys are going to be revered filmmakers. Like pe- yeah. People, even when they stop making movies... That people are going to look to these movies and be like, man, look at how great and diverse these movies were. All the different things these guys were doing. Yep. No, the Coen brothers are very diverse in their filmmaking. That's a fair, a fair statement because they make everything from serious, dark movies to stuff like this and stuff like Raising Arizona and Brother Where Art Thou. I mean, they have range. Um I've said it before. I don't think it's fair to call this a cult hit anymore. I think this is more just legitimate found an audience later in life movie. It's not a niche thing. It's universally accepted as being good and considered one of their better movies. I'm not sure if there's a term for that, but there should be because it's certainly part of the zeitgeist. But do you think this movie is overrated to a degree? Because it gets a lot of hype. And like you said, Mr. Wizard, there are festivals and it's revered and people love it. And college bros quote it. Is this movie flirting with the overrated territory? Because no. it's not, not at all. You know, it was no. overrated. You know what? Uh, the Hangover. Oh I'll God, yes. I'll say that potentially, this movie is flirting with being overhyped. And I mean, it's certainly it's got, we're not helping that because it's got I a religion. love this movie. But it's not. It's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. Like we said, it, it, uh, well. Now, You're not a perfect friend, no, so... No, well, no, that, that's the point I'm trying to do. I, I would argue this is close to a perfect movie. 
that that's well, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like, you know what? It does get a lot of praise, but my point and the bait I was trying to lay for this trap is that uh, I think it does get a lot of praise. I think it does get heaped with praise, but I kind of think it deserves it. It's it actually that good. It is. Well, the the thing about it is when I think of the Coen brothers, I kind of think of them on about the same par as with Tarantino. The only difference is, is Tarantino has gone so popularized that you know it, it's everything he does it doesn't matter what it is is going to go through the roof and the coen brothers to me are on the same level they're just not as recognized at this point in time which i think if once you get another 20 years down the road you know you're going to have tarantino and the and the coen brothers are going to be hand in hand that's a very good point because if if you were to ask somebody to name every tarantino movie they're probably going to be able to do it. If yes. you were to ask somebody to name every Coen Brothers movie, they're certainly not going to remember uh, Intolerable Cruelty. They're probably not going to remember Raising Arizona. Hudsucker uh, Proxy. Yeah, it. it's just not... Uh, Tim Robbins, Welcome Back to the Pod. But all their movies, for the most part, are very Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Does, do people know that's a Coen Brothers movie? I love the Ballad I of Buster Scruggs. I don't know. Um, that is great thing on netflix you should check out i just think they're you know they're really intelligent guys and they're doing the very similar things what tarantino does they write all their own scripts they cast all these people they're really close with and they use the same actors it's a great comparison well you know it's like i go through the list and i look at all these coen brothers movies and it's like shit i didn't know they did that oh my god they did that too and and I unfortunately could probably, like you said, name every Tarantino movie, but half of the movies that the, the Coen brothers have done, I didn't realize that they were responsible for. Uh, listen, full confession, in the 90s, I confused the Coen brothers with the Farrelly brothers. I'm not <laughs> proud of that. I was like, man, they went from like some really deep, crazy shit to like fucking something about Mary. Okay, I guess. Wow, they got range. Can we rewind to the portion of the pod where I said that Captain Cash wasn't a perfect friend? I'd like to double <laughs> down. I'm doubling down now. Look, no one's perfect, certainly. Well, I've made mistakes. Much like Captain Cash, I thought the Fairley brothers were actually just Chris Farley's other brothers. But I guess that wasn't true either. It's all a lie. It's all Tripling lie. down. You're in the pot now. I'm all in. Pushing everything in. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think the IT dudes, only a reasonable podcaster, left at this point. Well, at this point, folks, we've covered the plot. We've covered our general impressions of the Big Lebowski, and it's probably time we should take another break. And the duder is going <clears> to <throat> freshen up the old white Russian here, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side for our big bad Big Lebowski trivia challenge. We'll see you there. All right, loyal listeners, welcome back to Hops and Box Office Flops. Ah, fuck it, dude. Let's go bowling. This brings us to the competitive portion of the pod. It's time for the Dude Abides Trivia Challenge. All right, we've got the standard format. Six questions, multiple choice, and the winner receives a lovely throw rug that really ties the room together. Does this rug come with or without the P from the Chinaman? Dude, please. Asian-American is the preferred nomenclature. But anyway, 
the buzzing phrase tonight is, I am the walrus. V.I. Lennon. Are you ready for the trivia challenge tonight, gentlemen? Shoulder shots. I'm ready. Okay. Question number one. The dude's car plays a big part in the movie. It's a 1973 Ford Grand Torino, but it wasn't the Coen brothers' first choice. What car was? Was it A, a VW Microbus, B, a Chevy El Camino, C, a Cadillac Fleetwood, or D, a Chrysler LeBaron? I'm the Walrus. I'm Walrus. That's going to go to the IT dude. That would be a Chrysler LeBaron. Sir, you are correct. And could you tell us why it was not selected? John Goodman was too big. That is correct. They had to find a bigger sedan to squeeze Goodman's frame into. He's a large gentleman. Mm -hmm. Was he like six foot four, six foot five? Oh, yeah. And he's real heavy in this movie, too. Yeah. Uh, Yep. So, yep, they had to go with the bigger vehicle. Okay, well, that is one point for the IT dude. He takes the lead. That brings us to question number two. In the early drafts of the script, it was implied the dude lived off an inheritance derived from a toy or a game. I am the walrus. Oh, sorry. Am I supposed to wait for you to finish the question? No, you're fine. (laughs) Shoot your shot, IT dude. Shoot your shot. That would be, he is related to the Rubik's Cube fortune. That is, in fact, correct. Yeah, that was the explanation (laughs) for why he had money. Because I think the only artifact of that angle in the script is the whole deal with the landlord asking for the rent. Because it's implied that the dude can somehow pay rent without having a job. Well, if, if he has no job and he can't pay the rent, why is he post-dating checks for 69 cents is the question. Well, I, 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 I just think the money like comes in on a stipend kind of thing. So he's just kind of like, you know, living on borrowed time. But, yeah, I guess the implication there was that he does get an income from somewhere and it was his Rubik's Cube money. OK, uh, Mr. Wizard, Captain Cash, you are being outclassed markedly by the guest. It is now 2-0-0-4, the IT dude. And we are now at question number three in our The Dude Abides Trivia Challenge. I should say, yeah. I'm not sure what kind of residuals he got for being one of the authors of the Port Huron statement. But I'm sure there's a few. I think they're probably better than whatever he got for being part of the Seattle 7. But yeah. anyway, you have, to talk to about, you have to talk to Ron Kuby about that. Uh, okay, number three. There are many memorable songs in the movie. But I would argue that Town Van Zant's cover of the Stones' Dead Flowers, which plays over the last scene in the movie, is not one of them. How much did the Coen brothers pay the Rolling Stones to license that song for the film? The Dude Abides. I am the walrus. That goes to (laughs) Captain Cash. No no money. No money whatsoever. They got the, I fucking hate the Eagles. And he's like, fuck it, you can have the song. We're good. Yeah. So... <clears throat> so the Coen Brothers production company was trying to license the song from the Stones agent, and he asked to see the movie uh, before signing off on it. And when they got to the scene where the dude proclaims that he hates the fucking Eagles, man, he was like, done, deal, free. I like, Apparently the Stones hate the Eagles, too. Okay, so easy enough. Okay, uh, all right now, it is 
two to one to zero. Fact. That's a fun fact. That that is a fun fact. Do I finally get a fun fact? Yeah. Fuck you, Don Henley. Okay, so folks, (laughs) in case you're keeping score at home, the IT dude is leading two to one over Captain Cash, and that is a goose egg for the Thunderous Wizard. We are now at question number four. The Big Lebowski's cast features several real-life musicians. Which one has the most Grammy nominations as a solo artist? I repeat, solo artist. Is it A, Jeff Bridges? B, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, a.k.a. Smokey? C, Amy Mann? Or D, Flea? I am the walrus. Thunderous wizard. Uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore. That is incorrect. I am sorry. I am the walrus. Question goes to the IT dude. I would go with Amy Mann. That is correct. Mr. Wizard, you were so close. Smokey has three Grammy nominations, but Amy Mann has six. Wow. Jeff Bridges and Flea have zero. Flea has several as a member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but But none as a solo. Uh, Fun fact. I have no fucking clue who Amy Mann even is. Me oh, don't just flex on us like that. Then I, I th- hey, you know, y'all made, he made a big deal about her earlier. He did it was kinda, just a shot in the dark. He did, I did foreshadow I did. this. Foreshadow I planted that yeah. seed. I planted that seed. I thought she was one of the Indio, uh, Indigo girls, but she's not. Well, guess um, what? She never started in the chase with Charlie Sheen like Flea did, so she can go to hell. <laughs> wait, it, is That's that, worth it, all that, their Grammys wait, in gold. It, and that that's uh, Charlie Sheen. Is that Christy Swanson? Yes, it the, is a crazy, yeah. uh, crazy Christy Swanson, Charlie okay. Sheen. I've seen and, that. Uh, Anthony Kiedis also in it. Yeah, they're like the rednecks driving uh, monsters. I believe truck. Henry yeah. Rollins is in it. Yes, Henry Rollins. Yeah, wow, wow. Okay, wow. Woo, okay. I hurt my brain there, Thunderous Wizard. So I believe the score is now three to one to zero with... The IT dude in the lead, and I'm sorry, that's a goose egg for you, Thunderous Wizard. We are now at question number five. The movie introduces most of the world to an obscure Bob Dylan song, The Man and Me, which has become synonymous with the film and a staple of college playlists ever since. Which Dylan album did that song come from? Was it A, 1969's Nashville Skyline, B, 1970's New Morning, or C, 1975's Blood on the Tracks. Or D, 1975's The Basement Tapes. I am the walrus. Captain Cash. New morning. That is correct, sir. Fucking love Bob Dylan. And uh, I, I will say I have that song on my iTunes. And I have for many years. Boy, you know that Chumpsilla outs himself for being technologically deficient when he brings up his iTunes catalog as if you can't stream whatever song you would like for ten dollars a month. I can watch I can watch it on I I can watch it on YouTube too. I mean <laughs> well, whatever. I try why, and find it make... on my free Pandora, but it never comes up when I choose the Bob Dylan station. <laughs> why are you making fun of my, my Zune? Sweet Zune. Well, you know, I would be offended if you didn't have zero points, Thunderous Wizard. It is now Ooh. three to two with the IT dude in the lead and the Thunderous Wizard in the basement. This brings us to question number six. The Big Lebowski is famous for the numerous F-bombs it drops. How many times is the word fuck uttered in the movie? 
Is it A, 117? Is it B, 211? Is it C, 260? Or is it D, 331? Or E, 423 times? I am the walrus. Captain Cash. B, 211. You, sir, are incorrect. Damn. Can you, I mean. Can you repeat them again? I will repeat the answers again. I will repeat the remaining answers again. They are A, 117. They are C, 260. I am the walrus. I'll go for 260. The IT dude is correct. I was going to say it cannot be over 300. The word fuck is uttered in this movie a whopping 260 times. That equates to approximately 2.2 fucks per minute. (laughs) Now, fun fact, fun fact, it ranks at number 29 on the list of films that use the word fuck the most, falling just behind a pair of Tarantino movies, Reservoir Dogs with 269 fucks, which equates to 2.7 fucks per minute, and Pulp Fiction at 265, which equates to 1.7 fucks per minute. And just for the record, if you count all variations of the word fuck, it has about 292 fucks and or fuck variations. This is a very obscene movie. Might be one of the reasons it didn't quite catch on. I don't know. It's not a family movie? or <laughs> I, Yeah, so that being said, uh, I believe the IT dude has won 4-2 to two over the Thunderous Wizard. Mr. Wizard, thanks for playing, but you didn't really contribute, pal. I'm, I'm oh, sure well. they let me win. It's called yes, the, the Chubzilla Zone. Let you win as the guest. You are welcome. Yeah, Thank well, and I will get that rug in the mail for you with or without the urine, however you like it. We can make it work. Oh, it's going to have my urine on it. <laughs> well, yeah. I would expect nothing less. Yeah. Well, folks, I believe that concludes our Big Lebowski pod. I'm glad everybody stuck that out with us. It was a bit of a slog. I'm not going to lie. It's a good movie, but uh, that plot, it's a lot. That brings us to the final section of the pod, and that would be recommendations. I'll start off quickly because I'm selfish like that. I'm going to recommend a two and a half hour long documentary about the Star Wars uh, trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy. It's titled Empire of Dreams, the story of Star Wars. And it's free on Amazon Prime right now. And it basically covers the production of the first three Star Wars movies. And it's really interesting because it's not so much just like about you know, how the movies did and how they did the effects, but more about the business side of things, like how George Lucas kind of revolutionized the film industry uh, to get those movies made. Because I didn't kind of realize this until now, basically, that he was effectively an independent filmmaker. He kind of eschewed the uh, studio structure to get these made uh, outside of, you know, studio influence but distributed by fox yes so i i always assumed these were fox movies but they really weren't they were george lucas movies and fox just distributed them everyone was under the assumption this was a huge mistake and he was going to fail miserably yeah and i'm a star wars fan and i knew some of the things that this movie this documentary covers 
but I did not realize all of it. And I'm like, wow, this was really interesting. Like it was a bold business move. So this, this documentary is not so much about like the special effects and all that. It's more about the business side of it. And it's pretty interesting. Gentlemen, what do you recommend? Well, if you like that, you should uh, watch Star Wars Empire of Trolls, where it's just the documentary about all the fans that hated The Last Jedi. <laughs> That's not a thing. It, it should be. My recommendation is Fargo the TV show, which is obviously inspired by Fargo the motion picture. Um, it's very, very good. Uh, it definitely embodies the spirit of the movie in the way it is written and uh, sort of its themes. Uh, all three seasons are available on Hulu right now, and the latest season, season four, which... Uh, which the production of had been put on hiatus, will be premiering on September 27th. It's a really good show. Uh, it's different stories every time. So uh, just like Fargo the movie is a crime that happens at one point in time, they're all different crimes or different scenarios that happen in different points of time. So it's different casts, different characters. It's very, very good. I would, I would watch it. Okay, I guess I'll jump in here. Um, I'm going to stick with the uh, documentary side of it. And how about a visit to the Never Surrender documentary? It's uh, basically a documentary about the Galaxy Quest uh, movie that came out, I believe, back in the mid-90s. And yeah, it's, uh, it's right? Say, I'm sorry? It's Screen Junkies, right, that did it? Yes, Screen Junkies, and it is currently, and I just saw this last night, available for uh, for viewing on uh, Amazon Prime for free. Nice. Excellent. I'm going to give that Fantastic. a lot. Fantastic. Oh, it's, My, it's wonderful. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I love Galaxy Quest. And that has definitely popped up in my recommendations as well. My recommendation this week is going to be a show that came out as of our taping this. Uh, so I don't know how great it is because I've only really watched the first 20 minutes, but Lovecraft Country on HBO. Um, in the first five minutes, you get Dejah Thoris, the princess of Mars. You get the Martians from, uh, what is it? Not Mars Attacks. Uh, War of the Worlds, rather. Uh, and then you also get Cthulhu. And then Jackie Robinson kills at least one of them with a baseball bat. So... I'm kind awesome. of in. So it's just like a John Carter prequel. I'm in. The the guy definitely just like the lead character, as far as I can tell so far, definitely describes reading John Carter of Mars. Um, but uh, like n not knowing the where this is all completely going because I know this was also a novel. Um, as I understand it, the main character is a black guy, and it's sort of his coming to terms with racism as well as it relates to Lovecraft who was famously racist. Oh, Lovecraft. Lovecraft was crazy, man. That dude was xenophobic to the extent that you would never have believed. Like, I'm not sure Lovecraft was so much a person as he was a collection of racism, misogyny, and xenophobia that broadly took a man's shape. The darkest heart of Africa. He's a gross dude. He was a gross... But, you know... Because of that, he was able to write some really terrifying existential horror. Turns which, out he was actually a monster. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, when when you're a monster, I guess you can write fiction about monsters. Who knew? Well, this took a dark turn. Didn't Bring it? us back in, Mister Wizard. That was the first entry in our '90s series, 
we're coming back next week with Hackers, which... Uh, Hack the planet! Also starring a lot of famous people. Uh, Hack the but it's not a good movie, so... Uh, you can I, find... I don't know if y'all have watched that movie recently, but that that thing is so dated in technology. Oh, it yeah. is awful. Oh, yeah. Says the oh, IT oh. guy. And on that note, remember you can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hops and Bo Flops. Leave us a rating on the Apple iTunes app. It'd be great. We'd much appreciate it. And also recommend future episodes that you would like us to do. Close us out, Captain Cash. That was a pretty good pod, don't you think? Made me laugh to beat the band parts anyways i didn't like seeing the it dude go but i happen to know there's a little it dude on the way guess that's the way the whole darn human comedy keeps perpetuating itself down through the generation westward the wagons across the sands of time until we uh oh, look at me i'm just rambling again <laughs>